Amen, friends. Let's take it to the Lord in prayer one more time, briefly, and pray that the Lord would bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will be pleased to glorify yourself today through this time in your word. Lift the eyes of our hearts upward to behold your glory in the face of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, go ahead and turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 24. If you're using the Bible that we provided, you'll find the passage on pages 17 to 19. Yes, 17 all the way to 19. This is the longest chapter in Genesis. I want to encourage you to turn to Genesis 24 so that you can follow along as I read the chapter. And then I want you to also encourage you to keep your Bible open because we're going to be looking at the passage often in our time together. And that'll help you to see if what I'm teaching lines up with what is in the passage. I've said in past weeks that the central point of the book of Genesis is to trace the unfolding of God's promise to send a seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head and rescue mankind from sin. So all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when God cursed the serpent for tempting Adam and Eve to sin, he said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The woman, Eve, will have a seed, a child, and that child will crush the serpent's head. And from that point forward, Moses carefully traces the line of individuals through whom that seed would come. And in chapter 12, we learned that God's promised seed, the savior of mankind, would come from the family line of Abraham and his wife, Sarah. But now, we come to another major transition in the book of Genesis. Uh, Last week, we saw that Sarah passed away, and next week, we'll see that Abraham dies. But the promised child, who will crush the serpent's head, hasn't yet come. So who will take Abraham and Sarah's place? Who will inherit God's promises of a child who will crush the serpent and rescue mankind from sin? Well, that's what we learn in Genesis 24. So please follow along as I read Genesis 24 for us now. It's a long chapter. It's going to take about 10 minutes. But I want you to follow along as I read the whole thing for us. This is God's word. Give me one second. I had to put all the entire text in my manuscript, and it took up like six pages. So here we go. Genesis 24, this is God's word. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, 
Perhaps a woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master." Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms, weighing ten gold shekels, and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, Thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. 
Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, the Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, drink, and I will give water, draw for your camels also, let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. Then I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. And he also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men, and they blessed Rebekah and said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. 
Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. The main lesson that I think the Holy Spirit is teaching us today in Genesis 24 is that God can be trusted to sovereignly provide all that is needed to fulfill his promises to his people. God can be trusted to sovereignly provide all that is needed to fulfill his promises to his people. If you're taking notes, there's really gonna be, there's gonna be three basic parts to the sermon. In the first part, I'm gonna walk through the text and explain it as I go. Uh, But given how long the chapter is, I'm going to have to move more quickly in certain parts than others, and we're not going to be able to look at every aspect of this chapter. Then after I explain it, the second part will be showing how this passage is fulfilled in Christ, in the gospel. And then third, we're going to spend some time considering one point of application that I think we should draw from this text today. So let's go ahead and take a look at Genesis 24. You have your Bible open in front of you. I'm sure you noticed that as I read uh, that I read that as I read Genesis 24, that central to this chapter is Abraham's desire to find a wife for his son Isaac. Right? That, that's what this chapter is all about. And we see that from how the chapter begins and how the chapter ends. So I want you to look on me at verses two to four. Abraham makes his, his servant swear an oath to him. And what is that oath? He says, put your hand under my thigh. Real quick, that was a common way to show that you were making an agreement with someone. Kind of like a handshake today can show that you're making an agreement. He says, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. So find a wife at the beginning. Now look at the end of the chapter at verse 67. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. At the beginning of the chapter, the mission is given. Find a wife for my son. At the end of the chapter, the mission is accomplished. Rebekah became the wife of Abraham's son, Isaac. Chapter 24 is all about the mission Abraham gave to his servant to find a wife for his son. But that's not all chapter 24 is about. What chapter 24 teaches us beyond a shadow of a doubt is that the success of the mission did not depend on planning. It did not depend on strategy. It did not depend upon wisdom in negotiating. 
but on God sovereignly working throughout the chapter to provide the chosen wife for Isaac. You really can't miss the emphasis on God's sovereignty throughout the passage. Right, in verse seven, you can look there with me. After Abraham gives instructions to his servant to go and find a wife from his family, back in Ur of the Chaldeans in Mesopotamia, he says, the Lord, the God of heaven, will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife from my son from there. Talk about a confidence boost, right? Don't be afraid. God is gonna pave the way for you on this mission and pave the way for him he does. Right, the servant journeys to Mesopotamia. He arrives at a well of water and then he asks God for two things. He asks God to bless his efforts and he asks God for a sign, and not any old sign, right? But a highly specific sign, like the type of sign that if it happens, there will be no question that God has sovereignly provided what the servant is asking for. Look at verses 13 and 14. He basically says, oh God, I'm gonna ask one of the women who comes to the well for water, and the one who says that she'll not only give me a drink, but she'll also give my camels a drink too. Let that be the one that you have appointed as a wife for Isaac. If you can, if you can make that happen, oh God, then I'll know she's the one that you have chosen. You gotta love how verse 15, the very next verse begins. Look there with me. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebecca. Okay, God doesn't even wait for him to finish asking for the sign, right? Oh God, I am gonna ask that one of the women, boom, Rebecca, right? Done, here she is, here she is, but I haven't even asked, finished asking for the sign. I'm the Lord, I know what you're gonna ask for, that's her. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebecca, Moses, wants to make it abundantly clear that God is sovereignly acting behind the scenes to provide all that the servant needs and provide he does. In verses 15 to 21, it plays out exactly as the servant requested. He asks her for water. She says, yes. And then she says, let me water your camels also. Then in verse 23, the servant asks, who her family is, and she says, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Now we gotta remember, beginning of the chapter, Abraham told the servant to go to his family, to his clan, to his kindred, to find a wife for Isaac. But the servant has never met him, no Facebook, no Instagram, can't show them pictures of who they are, basically probably only has some names of some people he should be looking for in Mesopotamia, the gigantic region, right? But lo and behold, before he ever arrives in the city, before he ever starts searching, God not only brings a woman who is an answer to the sign the servant requested, he brings a woman who is Abraham's grandniece. Nahor, Rebekah's grandfather, is Abraham's brother. And in response to that news, 
the servant worships God. Verse 27, blessed be the Lord. He has not forsaken his steadfast love and faithfulness. He has led me to the house of my master's kinsmen. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't praise Abraham for his great instructions. He doesn't give credit to himself for pulling this off. He doesn't chalk it up to chance. No, he praises God because he recognizes that everything that has happened is one gigantic display of God's sovereign provision. And in the rest of the chapter, that drum keeps getting beat. The servant comes to Rebecca's home. We're gonna move quickly here. In verses 34 to 41, he recounts Abraham's instructions to them and how Abraham promised that God would send an angel before him. Then in verses 42 to 48, he tells them about the sign that he asked God for. He said, hey, I'm not just gonna ask for water, but let the woman who, who offers to water my camels also, let her be the one. And then guess what? Rebecca came, she gave me water, and then she watered my camels also. Like, like God is clearly working in this situation. He tells them about how he worshiped God for leading him right to Rebecca. And then the moment of truth comes. He asked them if they're gonna give Rebecca to be Isaac's wife. And look at how they answer in verse 50, just underscoring the Lord's work in all of this. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Rebecca is before you. Take her and go. Right, what are they saying? God is clearly at work in this. Who are we to stand in the way of what God is sovereignly and obviously bringing to pass? And then again, in verse 52, the servant responds by worshiping God, and he worships God because God has done this. God has led, God has guided, God has provided, God continues keeping his promises to Abraham by sovereignly providing a wife for Isaac. Yet his sovereign provision of a wife for Isaac wasn't an end in itself. He provided her so that his promised salvation would be accomplished. And you can see how important this event was in the unfolding plan of God's redemption. First off, it's the longest chapter in Genesis. Nowhere else do we get this type of specificity packed into one chapter. The promise of a child who would crush the serpent's head and bring the blessing of salvation to the nations of the world was given to Abraham and Sarah. But now Sarah is dead, Abraham is passing away, and that child hasn't yet come. Who is going to take their place? Who is going to take Abraham's place and Sarah's place? Who is going to inherit the promises? Who is God going to work through to bring about this promised salvation? And the answer that Genesis 24 gives is... Isaac and Rebekah. I want you to notice how clearly Moses wants us to see that Isaac and Rebekah have taken Abraham and Sarah's place. We see that Abraham, or that Isaac has taken Abraham's place. Look at verse nine. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master. At the beginning of the chapter, Abraham is the servant's master. Now look at the final verse of the chapter. When they return from the journey, Isaac is standing out in the field and Rebekah sees him from a distance and asks the servant, 
who is this man? And in verse 65, the servant says, it is my master. Isaac has assumed Abraham's place. And then immediately after that, we see that Rebekah has taken Sarah's place because in verse 67, Isaac takes Rebekah into the tent of Sarah. Sarah gone, Rebekah now here. God's sovereign provision now in the tent of Sarah. Isaac and Rebekah, the new conduits of God's promised salvation to all the nations and to all the earth, right? Isaac and Rebekah are the new Abraham and Sarah. And if we have any questions about that, we can just look clearly at verse 60. Look there with me. As Rebekah is leaving her family, they send her off with a blessing. And notice what that blessing is. Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Just as God promised innumerable descendants and an offspring who would possess the gates of his enemies to Abraham and Sarah, so Rebekah's family prays that she would have innumerable descendants and a child who possesses the gates of his enemies through her marriage to Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah are the recipients of God's promised salvation. The chosen offspring who will crush the serpent's head and rescue mankind from sin will come through them. But there's an even deeper lesson here for the people of Israel and for us. It's not just that Isaac and Rebekah are the recipients of God's blessing. What Moses wanted the people of Israel to see and what I think we should see is God sovereignly working to ensure his promises are fulfilled. We've already seen how God's sovereign power is at work throughout this chapter in leading the servant directly to Rebekah, but you can't forget about Isaac. Why does Isaac exist in the first place? The only reason he exists at all is because of God's sovereign power and his promise to give a barren woman a child. He exists because God sovereignly caused him to exist. Both Isaac and Rebekah are monuments of God's sovereign power working to fulfill his promises to his people. And if God could sovereignly bring Isaac into existence and sovereignly lead the servant to Rebekah, then he can be trusted to sovereignly provide all that is needed to fulfill his promises to his people. That's what Moses wanted the people of Israel to see in Genesis 24. Trust God's sovereign power to fulfill his promises to his people. Look at what he's already done for Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and now Rebekah and what he's going to keep doing throughout Genesis. Look back on all of that. See God's sovereign power at work in all of human history and trust that he will fulfill his promises to his people. That was a lesson they did not learn. They didn't trust his sovereign power to provide for them in the wilderness. So they grumbled and complained. They didn't trust his sovereign power to lead them into the promised land. So they fell back in fear when they saw their enemies. They didn't trust his sovereign power to lead them after he brought them into the promised land 
So they clamored for a human king. Give, give, give us a king like the nations. We don't want you to be our king. We want, we want a, a human king to rule us. And then over and over again, you read the book of Judges and you just see like, this is a, just a complete denial of God's sovereign power. The people of Israel sin. Their enemies take them captive. They finally come to their senses. They call out to God to save them. God sovereignly raises up a savior to save them. They're freed from bondage and captivity. They rejoice for a little while, and then they fall back into sin again and deny his sovereign power again. Over and over and over, that cycle repeats until finally God kept his sovereign promises to them. He promised them that if they rejected him, he would sovereignly stir up the nations of Assyria and Babylon and sovereignly send them into exile among the nations, and that he did. He stirred up the king of Assyria and the king of Babylon, and the northern kingdom and southern kingdom were both taken off into exile. But exile couldn't stop God's sovereign power to fulfill his promises. In exile, he sovereignly kept a remnant of believers protected among the Israelites. And he sovereignly brought them back to Israel where they rebuilt the temple and waited for God's sovereign power to be displayed in the sending of his promised Messiah, the offspring who would crush the serpent and possess the gates of his enemies. And in the fullness of time, God did just that by sovereignly sending his son, Jesus Christ, the serpent-crushing seed of the woman who came to rescue his people from bondage and came to possess the gates of his enemies. Not the enemies of the foreign nations like Assyria and Babylon and Rome, but the enemies of sin, death, Satan, and hell. And Jesus sovereignly went to war with those enemies on the cross by dying as a substitute in our place. And as he died on the cross, Paul says in Colossians, he disarmed his enemies. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He came to possess the gates of his enemies. Satan thought he was taking me down, but in my death and my resurrection, he is being defeated and I am being exalted and I will possess the gates of all of my enemies. Three days after he died on the cross and was buried, God sovereignly raised Jesus in power from the dead, displaying his victory over sin, death, Satan, and hell. And Jesus commands all people everywhere to turn from sin and trust in him for the forgiveness of sins and the promise of everlasting life. And that promise is for you today. If you don't understand yourself to be a follower of Jesus, I wanna encourage you in the strongest and most loving way possible to repent of your sins, to turn from them, and to put your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And you might be thinking, how can I know how can I know that if I put my trust in Jesus that I will be saved? Is there a sign that God could give me, maybe like he gave to the servant of a, a woman coming and drawing water and giving the candles? Is, is there a sign that I could perhaps trust in? God said, I'm gonna give everyone the greatest sign possible. Not just a woman showing up with water who's gonna water camels and things like that. You want a sign that Jesus can save you from the dead? He rose from the dead. God said, greatest sign ever. All of my authority, 
All of my power, all of my victory, all of your salvation is in him. And he rose from the dead. Y'all know anyone else who rises from the dead? I don't. I've never seen it. Jesus got up from the dead. God's sovereign sign for you. That if you put your trust in him, you can trust him to provide everything else that you need for life and salvation. Friends, for those of you who have turned to Jesus, I want you to listen to what Peter says about Jesus' death and resurrection in Acts chapter 2. It may not seem like a big thing, but connected with this passage, it is. He says, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. What definite plan? Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman is coming to crush the serpent's head. That definite plan unfolded throughout all generations according to God's sovereign power and culminated in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If God can sovereignly work through the totality of human history and all the interactions, individual and corporate of mankind, and all the schemes and plots and things like that that are hatching, all the craziness that has ever happened, if God can sovereignly work through it all to bring about his definite plan in the perfect culmination of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, you can trust him with everything else. You can trust the Lord's power to preserve you and keep you and bless you and bring you to himself. Right? God worked through the totality of human history to bring about the fulfillment of this plan. And if he can sovereignly give you and I new hearts to worship Jesus, if he can sovereignly do that, then we can trust God to sovereignly provide all that is needed to fulfill all of his other promises to us. So that that message that Israel missed, to trust God's sovereign power, trust him. He is worthy of it. That that message is for you and me today. Trust him. He is sovereign and powerful to keep all of his promises to his people. Consider just some of God's promises to us in Christ. Just some. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given to me. Have you come to Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus? I will lose none, you included. I will lose none that the Father has given to me. For God has said, I will never leave you, never will I forsake you. If God clothes the grass of the field, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. God will supply all of your needs according to his glory in Christ Jesus. Nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, not even death itself, because God has promised that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. 
I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Promise after promise after promise after promise, all of them will be kept because nothing can prevent God and his sovereign power from keeping his promises to his people. We could go on and on listing off God's promises to his people, but the question I want to ask you today is which of those promises can God not keep? Which of those promises is God not able to fulfill? Which of those promises are beyond the scope of his sovereign power? None of them are. And if God can and will keep all of his promises to us by sovereign power, what type of people should we be? That's a question with a fill in the blank at the end. And we could fill in that blank with lots of different correct answers. There's one that I want you to think about today. What type of people should we be? We should be a people who are bold in our faith. Bold in our faith. If you've been a Christian for a while, you have probably heard that phrase a lot. I just wanna hold it out to you again, ask you to consider it again, to think about what this looks like in your life. We should be a people who are bold in our faith, who are not afraid to speak up about Jesus, who are willing to speak up in winsome ways about Jesus in settings where it normally wouldn't be expected. But where am I getting that from? In Genesis 24. I wonder if you noticed Abraham's servant. My man wasn't afraid to speak up about the Lord. Look at verses 26 and 27. After Rebekah tells him that she's Nahor's granddaughter and invites him to stay with her, what does he do? He bows his head and worships the Lord right then and there in front of Rebekah, whom we have no reason whatsoever to think that she worships the Lord as well. And then he says out loud in front of her, blessed be the Lord, God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and faithfulness toward my master. And then again, in front of Rebecca's family, he doesn't shy away from talking about the Lord. The Lord has greatly blessed my master. The Lord went before me and prospered my way. He could have very easily said nothing about the Lord right there, right? He could have very easily said, yeah, I came to the well, just so happened. Rebecca was there. It seems to me like this is a really good fit. No, the Lord went before me. The Lord prospered my way. The Lord led me to Rebecca. And then after they agree to give Rebecca in marriage, he does it again. Verse 52, bows himself in front of them to worship the Lord. Trust in God's sovereign power to fulfill his promises should lead us to greater boldness in talking about Jesus to our neighbors because God has promised in his sovereign power to save those who call on him. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's great, John, but what does that have to do with boldness in talking about Jesus? I'm glad you asked. How then will they call on him in whom they have never heard? How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? Friends, God has tied his sovereign power, his sovereign determination to save sinners directly to the proclamation of the gospel. 
if we want to see God's sovereign uh, power displayed in saving our family, our friends, our coworkers and neighbors, we are going to have to talk to them about Jesus. That's how God determined to save people, by the people that he saved, then telling others about what he had done in their life. The Lord has blessed my master Abraham. The Lord led me on the way. The Lord brought me to Rebekah. The Lord did all of this. And what an opportunity we have this week. Right? Obviously, every week is a good week to talk about Jesus. Every day is a good day to talk about Jesus. But this week of all is an especially good week. Right? As we approach Easter, your families, your friends, your coworkers and neighbors, they are expecting you to talk to them about Jesus. Right? Like, isn't Easter something that Christians do? Like, they, they are expecting it to happen. So I want you to think about how you can weave what God is doing in your life into your week and your interactions this coming week with your family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, right? Think about this. As, you, as you're taking out your trash and you get into a conversation with your neighbor, don't shy away from talking about what God is doing in your life. They ask you how things are going. You could say something like, oh, we're doing well. God has been really kind to us in this season. But we've seen numerous ways that he's answered prayer in our lives. Or you could say something like, we're really struggling right now. My spouse lost someone they loved and we're really grieving, but we also have hope because Jesus has promised that death isn't the end for those who trust in him. Just little ways to drip in The Lord is the center of our life. The Lord is at work in our lives. The Lord is doing these things. We we don't want to become practical atheists, right? We talk about what the Lord is doing because the Lord is doing it, right? He is at work. And we want to merge those types of comments, those drips in our conversations with the life of service and kindness to others. Right, there are some people who are gonna be really gifted evangelists who are just super skilled in every conversation, just boom, they get to Jesus and it's like, whoa, how did that happen? I didn't even see, what, 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 how, did, how did you get from there to there? And the person's not offended and they're actually tracking with you. There are some people like that. They're just super skilled at it. But I would say most of us who are called to share the gospel are, are like small plate restaurants, right? We have a bunch of small plates that we can offer that add up to an amazing meal. Right, small plates like baking a warm loaf of bread and bringing it to your neighbors, or mowing their lawn when they're on vacation, or checking in on a coworker when you know they're struggling, or consistently showing kindness and interest in your barber or hairdresser, and then taking the opportunities that come up to drip in comments about your relationship with the Lord. And kids, teens, this is just as important for you all as well. Whether you're around other kids who think they are Christians or kids who are openly not following Jesus, I wonder if you're taking opportunities to talk about your own faith in Jesus, right? So many kids, as you get older, you're gonna find out that so many kids who grew up in non-Christian homes got saved through the witness of other friends that are kids who told them about what Jesus was doing. Right, so I think back to when we started our church in 2018, Aaron Whitehouse was a member. Some of you might know Aaron. If you don't, not a big deal. Aaron Whitehouse was a member. She was raised by very vocal atheists. Her parents are still very vocal atheists. They were back then. They still are now. 
But at age five, she became best friends with Leah and her family. And from age five to age 18, she hung out a ton with the Bennetts, just constantly observing their life, them talking about Jesus to her and things like that, all 13 years. And then at age 18, she became a Christian. 13, John, are you telling me it may take 13 years? It may take longer. But that's the life that God has called us to as ambassadors for Christ who trust in his sovereign power to save. It may not happen after one conversation or a thousand, but we trust that God is at work. It's God's power to save and that he will save all who he is, all, we, all he calls to himself. And God honors his people's boldness when they speak for him. We can be confident that those he has called will respond to his voice because in his sovereign grace, his salvation is irresistible. And we see that even in the passage, right? Consider Rebecca. Notice how she responded to hearing about the Lord with the same faith that Abraham had. She heard about the Lord and is now choosing to leave her land, her kindred, and family to entrust herself to God and to his promised redemption. Friends, there was a point in our lives when you and I didn't believe. How did we come to believe? We came to believe because somebody boldly spoke up and told us about the Lord and about his glorious and merciful salvation that he has offered to all through his son, Jesus. And as we heard that message, God, by his sovereign power, gave us life. And in the end, just as Rebecca was led like a bride to Isaac, so God led us to the bridegroom, Christ and has given us eyes to see in his death and resurrection the beauty, glory, and sovereign power of God in salvation. And the God who sovereignly saved us will sovereignly keep us until the day when by his sovereign power, he brings us into his kingdom to be his bride forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we don't often or nearly enough trust in your sovereign power. We do fall back in fear. We don't speak up. Uh, Lord, we confess and repent, and we pray that you'd help us to trust anew in your sovereign power to fulfill all of your promises to your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.